Coming up next on Chapters, we sit down for a conversation with Franklin's own Rabbi Thomas Alpert. Rabbi Alpert is a man who refused to believe that a dream deferred is a dream denied. So stay tuned for a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation with Rabbi Alpert coming up next on Chapters. My name is Jim Derrick, and welcome to another edition of Chapters. Today in studio, we are very, very happy to have the Rabbi Tom Alpert. Welcome, Tom. Thank you, Jim. It's great to be here. Well, thanks for being here. Uh, rabbi Alpert has a wonderfully interesting story. Uh, he is he is the rabbi at Temple Etz Chaim here in Franklin, Massachusetts. Um, have your bachelor uh, bachelor in arts from Yale University. Yes. And uh, you also have received your uh, JD in law from Harvard and went on to practice law for for many years. Is that correct? Ten years, yes. Yeah, ten years. Okay. Uh, And in that time, you were also the assistant attorney general in Massachusetts. I was one of the assistant attorneys general, yep. So um, I'm very, very interested in your history and how a a lawyer who has uh, obviously had both practiced uh, privately and worked for the public as a public servant uh, in the attorney general's office, comes to be an ordained rabbi. Okay. So uh, I thought this would make a very, very interesting story. The name of the show is Chapters, and we're interested in stories, so that's that's what we do. So, Rabbi Albert, why don't we dig right in and talk about uh, where you grew up and your early formation? Sure. I grew up Uh, I was born actually in Springfield, but we moved when I was very little. My father was a civil engineer and went where roads and bridges were to be built. And he was sent down to Galveston, Texas Uh when I was uh, one year old and ended up uh, settling there. Mm. And that's where I grew up uh, in a uh, lovely uh, community on the Texas Gulf Coast. Uh, You know, other than the hurricanes, it was fine. Sure. Uh, and I had a very nice time. And we had a synagogue there, a temple that my both my parents got very involved in. My mother became president of the sisterhood, and my father became president of the temple. And that that means those are those are both positions for for lay people, not Go- for governing, clergy. Governing, yeah, governing positions, positions yeah, right? Yeah, like deacons in a church. Sure. Um, and so I grew up uh, in that temple, which had been around, you know, since the eighteen sixties. And uh, went through religious school there and uh, and enjoyed it very much. Uh, became bar mitzvah there, uh, and uh, that was a that was a great time. Did you have brothers and sisters? I had one brother mm-hmm. uh, who uh, uh, a few years older than me, uh, and he also you know went through. Uh, uh, the schools there and in uh, religious school. Sure, sure. So you transitioned from Galveston, Texas. Somehow you find your way north and east. Yes. Well, as I mentioned, uh, my dad um, was from Western Mass. That's, right. He grew up in. Chi- yeah, he sure. actually grew up in Chicopee. Sure. And my mother um, it came to Western Mass after World War II. She had uh, uh, grown up in Germany. Mm-hmm. And was able to get out to Peru in 1937. Wow. That's a whole long story. Wow. Uh, and in fact, we're, um, uh, we're related on her side of the family to Anne Frank's family. And no kidding. She, yeah. And she actually uh, uh, traveled from Amsterdam to Peru. She went out from Germany, got to Amsterdam, and she stayed with the Franks. She was around uh, the age of Anne's older sister, Margot. Uh, and uh, so, you know. 
Wow, that's yeah. inc- that's absolutely incredible. Yeah, that that's a, that's a major part of our lives. And, and where did your mom and dad meet? They met um, in Springfield. So uh, by the at the end of the war, uh, she came up to uh, and ended up going to uh, UMass, mm-hmm. and her um, uncle and aunt had been able to get into the U.S. and had settled and had, uh, they're both doctors, and had a medical practice in uh, in the Springfield area, that, and so had two medical practices, I should say. Um, and so my mother stayed with them. Her parents were still down in Peru. Um, and so she was in Springfield. My dad was in Springfield, and they were introduced by mutual friends in the Springfield Jewish community. Interesting. And and do you remember the impact that your your parents had with their involvement in in the temple? Did that impact you as a young absolutely young boy? Absolutely. Um, we came to to services on a pretty regular basis. Sure. And I just felt at home in the temple. It was. Uh, what was going on there felt it was just an extension of our family life. We weren't—there um, th- were families more ritually involved in some ways at home than ours were. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the temple was part of our lives, and that was very special to me. And uh, I especially enjoyed—I had great rabbis growing up, and I loved the fact that they were constantly asking questions— and trying to teach by questions rather than by telling us you have to do this and you have to do that. Um, and they came out and some of them took politically unpopular positions and I admired their courage and I admired their thoughtfulness and uh, I admired the kinds of learning that you did, uh, that they did, um, as well as feeling very comfortable with the services right. so so it's an important part of your formation it was. very very important part um you know I'm, I'm blessed as well to have parents that were very involved in our in our faith community and uh, food pantries mm-hmm. and always reaching out and um you know now as i get older i reflect back on my own life and there are there are some regrets I have that I didn't follow directly in their footsteps, but I will tell you it was it was very inspirational and a mm-hmm. big part of my formation, so I can identify with that. So at some point, you you leave that area mm-hmm. um, and you come back to to Massachusetts, right? Came east because after all, both my parents had this connection to the east. Sure, so, of course. Uh, uh, it came east, uh, went actually to boarding school first, and then to to college in the east. So I had become uh, connected in with the, the northeast, and uh, I had. You know, and you start thinking about what you're going to do with your life. Sure. And when I was at boarding school, we had a, a my mother uh, got cancer and died, and mm-hmm. that was obviously a very powerful impact on me. And how how old was she when she uh, passed? She was 46. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and so that I, I had gotten involved with uh, some interfaith service groups yeah. at the school, and with creative services. Uh, and I came back to my rabbi in Galveston that summer after my mother passed, and I said, uh, you know, I'd like to bring one of these services into our temple and maybe some on a, on a Shabbat, on a Sabbath in the summer when nobody's around so it, they won't mind my being creative. And he said, you know what? I don't really like what we do on Yom Kippur afternoon. Why don't you write a service for that instead? Wow. And I said, um, I, uh, uh, sure. <laughs> so off I went trying to learn what you did, and I put something together, and he edited it and so forth. And so my senior year, I came down. I left 
uh, school and came down to, to Texas uh, for this service and thought, hey, maybe I can become a rabbi. You know, uh, and, and how old were you at that point? At this point, I was 17. 17 years old. So you haven't started your, your formal college right. education yet. Right. But this is a seedling of what's to come. Precisely. And and how did the service go, by the way? The service went very well. I actually came to look at it years later, and I'm very grateful that no one has seen it since. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, I thought it was the greatest thing, and right, people seemed right, happy with right, it. Right, What a bold move by that rabbi, and what what it a was. what a wonderful uh, trajectory that he yes. set you on. And he's still alive and oh. uh, still a, a mentor of mine. That's so. that's fantastic. Yeah. So then you go off to Yale, I guess. At, I went off to Yale. Okay, and um, you you studied uh, there for for you got your bachelor's there. Yep, and I was doing history. My mother had been a had gone had gotten a master's degree in history, and so I was sort of following in her footsteps. And you did you actually took that to Harvard for a I did. Yeah. I did. And actually, my um, my mentor at Harvard was my mother's uh, graduate school mentor when no she kidding. was there. So it was really, it was a family tradition. Right. Um, but I had thought about the rabbinate. And then when I got to college, I said, I, I found people who were so much more ritually knowledgeable about Judaism. And I said, you know, forget it. The, I, the I intimidation factor. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I was intimidated. And I said... Look, there were other things I liked, too. Um, I really liked history. I was going to go on and uh, go for a doctorate there. Sure, sure. And then decided, well, maybe, but I also liked law and politics, and so I ended up going to law school. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you say that. I I can um, think of times in my own past where I have had— you know that old angel and devil on the shoulder, yeah, and you've huh? got those those voices in your ears clanging around, and and uh, unfortunately, I think that's the case with most of us. We we tend to talk ourselves out of things pretty quickly. Yep. Uh, the great news is that you didn't talk yourself out of it permanently. Yep, <laughs> as evidenced by by the fact that you're sitting here today. Yeah, um, you went on. I've to, got a story about yeah, that. Yeah, that. I'll ta- No, but we'll yep. save it for later. Okay, very good. Very good. I'm very interested in that. Union. I was ordained at a place called Hebrew Union College, which was uh, started um, about 125. 130 years ago in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, and has um, campuses, also has a campus in New York City. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that, after I practiced law, I ended up at Hebrew Union College for my ordination in New York. Fantastic. And what year was that? I started in 1996 and was ordained in 2000. Great, great. Um, I just want to remind folks, we are on Chapters Radio. Uh, you can find us at our podcast, www.chaptersradio.com. We're also here at WFPR 102.9. FM in Franklin. Uh, we are having a conversation with Rabbi Tom Alpert, and we're talking about his his early formation. Uh, I want to backtrack a little bit uh, mm-hmm. from your ordination to your law school and mm-hmm. your, uh, rather your law experience and yep. your practice of law. W- can you talk to me a little bit about uh, not just what type of law you were practicing, but also how that might have informed you uh, to go ahead and get ordained and maybe how those lessons have, have played out in life uh, beyond uh, your okay. ordination? So a couple of things. On on one level, just in terms of Jewish involvement, I continued that even though I had decided not to be a rabbi. I, I got involved in helping lead services at Harvard mm. when I was at law school. Uh, later on, we were members of congregations, and I was involved in some of the lay leadership positions. Uh, so that was going on. But uh, 
to, to answer your question more directly in terms of my practice, I uh, started doing civil litigation representing at a, a largish firm, which principally was representing businesses and business disputes. And ultimately, I was finding that that really wasn't what I wanted to be doing. I wanted to do something to do what we call in Judaism tikkun olam, which means the repair of the world. Mm. I mentioned those rabbis who had taken stances for yes. unpopular social causes um, and uh, you know desegregation and opposition to the Vietnam War, in my case. And that had made a major impact, and I always felt I needed to do something. I wanted my work to be about not just the you know not just work but also something to make the world better mm -hmm. so i went to the state attorney general's office um, where i started working on antitrust and consumer protection eventually representing state agencies and got involved in trying to find ways to you know to to, to work for causes i was that i believed in um you know the i i thought the uh, uh Folks running the attorney general's office uh, had their hearts in the right place, uh, and that uh, we were involved in in doing some work of justice, and so that was important to me. Um, the problem was it still wasn't quite enough, and it wasn't quite the right way to do it for mm -hmm, me. Mm -hmm. And was there was there a sense in your mind that that the us against them, and that we need to have a final decision and judgment? Was that uh, did that play into it? Did that have a role? Yes, I mean part of it uh, was that I was often seeing a level of ambiguity that made it hard to say. Well, we have to do it this way, and we have to win, and they have to lose, and we're the good guys, and they're the bad guys. Right. I mean, there, there were a few occasions where there were bad guys, but often it was that wasn't really my favorite way of uh, of resolving things. Sure, sure. So gnawing at you, I, I'm going to use the phrase gnawing at you because you're a very passionate person. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we're on radio, but if uh, but but being in Tom's company, you can feel the passion and compassion come from him. So I'm just I'm just imagining that gnawing inside of you is that desire, as you said, to to do something greater than adjudicate yep. law and and have a business right uh, and another part it. of it was the part that i really liked in some ways i mean i liked research and writing that's always been important to me but I, another part that i really liked was uh were things that you know you couldn't count as your work when when there was somebody in one of your uh colleagues had an issue they were trying to work through something i really liked working with them listening to them talking to them basically being pastoral. Sure. And uh, that's, you know, while there's some of that in law, it's really not the major part of your job. Right. And I, I wanted a sense that that should be a bigger thing that Probably I Probably can't count that as billable hours in the, in, the, in the law firm where it's where, where the real, real spiritual uh, work gets done right. uh, in being in community. So uh, from, at that point, you go out and uh, after your ordination, and I know that you've well, served— let oh, me please, tell you, let me please. tell you about the ordination story yeah. because I think you'll be interested yes. in this. So um, all this is going through my head that I've just been describing, and I was taking a walk with my wife. And uh, we were, you know, out on the, near our house. We were just wandering down the street. And uh, I said, I really don't like what I'm doing. And she said, 
well, what do you want to do? And I said, you mean anything? And she said, yes, what do you want to do? And without much more thinking, I said, I want to be a rabbi, something I had not seriously thought about since college. Right, right. Right? Um, And my wife, um, who is either a a wonderful person or a crazy person, (laughs) I haven't decided which, uh, said, well, I have decided, but... uh, said, why don't you go talk to our rabbi? And I said, but I'm too old. She said, why don't you go talk to our rabbi? And at this point, how old were you? At this point, I was about 36. Okay. And so I went and talked to our rabbi, and I said, I've got this idea, but this is crazy at my age. And he said, hmm. And he gave me the phone number of a member of our congregation who was 10 years older than I was and was studying to be a rabbi. So I couldn't put age down anymore. No, no that was no longer a disqualifier. Right. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, he gave me some things to read and said, look, think about it. And I started uh, to do um, informational interviews with rabbis. Tell me what your job's like. Tell me what the work is like. Tell me what being a rabbi is. What do you love? What do you hate? Uh, and the more and more I learned, the more I realized that this was exactly what I needed to be doing. You literally were being called. Yes. It's funny. We Jews tend not to use that term, but I think it's a perfect term for what was happening to me. It sounds like it because, as you described, you have a wonderful wife whom I've met, uh, Eileen. Yes. Uh, And um, Eileen, uh, I I assume there was a knot in your stomach and maybe a lump in your throat when you came out with Rabbi because Mm -hmm. that might not have been the answer that she might have been expecting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And with that comes uh, a level of responsibility, which includes sacrifice for the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It includes expense. Yep. Uh, and it includes, I assume, a smaller uh, income yep. than might have been potential uh, for, for a lawyer. Yep. But yet you got the uh, the reaction that uh, your wonderful wife um, was was all in. And she's been so incredibly supportive. And I will tell you, this has been there have been times when this has been extremely hard for her. Hmm. When I was when I was studying for ordination, I had to go down to New York for typically four days out of the week. Right. I, had a, right. I had a little place that I rented down there. Uh, and at this point, we had three kids you under three the children. age of three. Sure. And she, you know, was, and she was responsible for all of that. And uh, it was, it was, uh, it was so hard, but she was amazing. You, you, you selected well, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, and as did she. And uh, it sounds like a real family affair, yep. uh, to say yep. the least. Absolutely. Yeah. None, yeah. Of, none, none of what I've done would have been at all possible without her. It's yeah. just not possible. I'm really glad you shared that story, because I think that's really instructive. There's so many forks in the road for everybody as we age. Uh, while we're young, we're told we have to do things in blocks of time. So you've got high school and then you're supposed to move on to college. Everything's supposed to be linear. Mm -hmm. At least that's the way I always envisioned things as I was growing older. And the great surprise and great joy for me has been understanding that it doesn't matter how old you get. You can have 15 different careers in life if you want to. It's your canvas to paint on. Well, you know, it's interesting, too, in terms of of choices and times, because I said I was 36. Well, I didn't actually end up going down uh, to um, Hebrew Union College until I was 42. So what happened in those six years? Well, you know, I looked at the logistics of it and this and that and the other, and our kids came along and all kinds of things. And you're practicing law. And I was practicing law, and all kinds of things happened. And one of the things that happened was— 
my brother was diagnosed with AIDS at a time when that was still a death sentence. And indeed, he did die of it. Um, And the story I have to tell is that I was thinking, well, you know, the rabbit, it's a great idea, but it's really hard. The logistics are just really hard. Um, Maybe I can do something. Maybe I should go into to. Maybe I can do some law teaching. I can finish up my doctorate, which I never got. I started but didn't finish. And and so maybe I can do that, and that'll be less crazy. It'll be, you know. And I was literally on the phone with my old graduate advisor when call waiting came in back in the days when there was call waiting. And it was my parents saying that my brother, it was now time. He was living out in Seattle at the time, so I got on the plane. And while I was on the plane when I got there, as he, as we watched him, uh, as we watched him die, um, and as I started to think about this, I realized that you don't have life is short, and if you're going to make a decision and you're going to do something that's a big change, you better do the one you really want to do. And at that point, I decided I needed to go to rabbinical school and. Uh, that was really wow. what decided it. And your brother's name? My brother's name was Bill. 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 So um, so that's another uh, formative moment for you, to yep. say the least, and um, propels you on yep. um, your way. And this is the second tragedy that you've you've sustained as, as yep. a young person, losing your mom at, at the young age of 46 and now Bill. Yep. And uh, so at that point, you, you go full on in. Yep, I do. And... Um, uh, your ordination takes place when you're how old? I was um, just short, just shy of forty six. Okay, forty six. Okay, and when you first come out as an ordained rabbi, do you immediately go in as an assistant? Uh, ah, good question. Is there another so in process? Ju- so in Judaism, um, we have what you would call a very congregational system. We don't have, uh, unlike say the Catholic Church, where uh, uh, the bishop might send you to a particular uh, parish. Um, our congregations are all free-standing organizations, and they have a hiring committee that decides okay. who they want to engage as their rabbi. So it's really up to you to decide what kind of rabbinate you want. For some people, it is community work, um, chaplaincy, academics, the like. For some people, it's assistantship in a large congregation. And for some people, it's just having being the solo rabbi at a smaller congregation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's what I did. I um, was ordained in 2000, and the you know in the months before, I interviewed for a few different positions, and um, we ended up. Uh, have, I was engaged by a congregation in Malden as their solo rabbi. Right, right. And I'm, I'm interested, I know that uh, your current uh, temple is uh, and part of the Reform. Uh, yes. And, and what is the technical term? So it is the Reform Movement. Reform Movement, okay. And had you always been, was it, was so, that movement in, in around in 2000? Yes. The Reform Movement has been around in the U.S. since um, uh, the 19th century. Sure, okay. Um, and the seminary that I went to, the rabbinical school that I went to, is associated with the Reform Movement. Um, unlike divinity schools, which are tend to be not associated with any particular branch of Christianity often, but then just ordain someone and they go on to uh, 
to uh, uh, they graduate someone right. they're ordained right. separately. Yep. For us, graduation and ordination are related. Okay. And so you go to a reform seminary or a conservative seminary or an orthodox seminary, and then continue on in that stream. Part of the continuum. I right. get it. And that makes sense. Uh, your education is based on the reform movement. Yes. And uh, that reform movement, um, I was interested in reading that uh, the, I guess you'd call it the tenets yep. of, of the reform. Yep. Um, yep. Uh, they've, they've had a series of, pla- they've had um, four platforms in their history in the U.S. and we're on, so, and each one sort of sets out, you know, the, the posi- basically what it means to be a reform Jew, which of course written in different language and different uh, terms uh, as time as, ch- as times change. Sure, but to the to the to the layperson to me, yep. uh, what I hear is um, social justice, I hear inclusion, yep. a very very big tent. Yep. Um, I hear a celebration of women yep. uh, and women in leadership roles. Absolutely. Uh, so um, uh, that uh, equates to from my uh, faith perspective, um, uh, I'm an Episcopalian, and, mm-hmm. and there are various, so I can I can identify with that, mm-hmm. um, and that certainly lines up with what you were talking about in your formation as you were thinking and and thinking about this. I just want to remind folks we're having a great conversation with. Uh, Rabbi Tom Alpert about his uh, formation and now ordination and becoming a rabbi. We are on WFPR 102.9 FM. Uh, This is Chapters Radio. My name is Jim Derrick. Rabbi, I'd love to talk to you a, a, a little bit about I know you went. To, you had various temples that you went to, all the way from Marlboro to Malden to Brookline, mm-hmm. I believe, mm-hmm. and eventually you've settled here in Franklin. Correct. I'd love to talk to you about what what it is like to um, to be the pastoral leader of of a community, uh, mm-hmm. and particularly how that's evolved for you over time. I can imagine. I'm just imagining myself entering that position as a as a new. Uh, member of the clergy, and it must be overwhelming at first, but uh, it's something that must evolve for you over time. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? So um, I love being a congregational rabbi at a congregation of the size of Temple Etz Chaim. We're not an exceptionally large synagogue, and so this gives me an opportunity to really get to know a lot of people and to feel like I have an impact on their lives, Mm. uh, and that's special. Um, in terms of the evolution, I mean, uh, yeah, when you start out, you know what you know about life and you know what you learned in school. Sure. And then you have to figure out how you connect the two to actually working with people and having, you know, helping them with their lives. I mean, as, as a rabbi, you're dealing with people at all kinds of different uh, stages of uh of uh, of their lives and what's going on in their lives, and often you're dealing with them when there's um, either moments of great joy or moments of great sadness. And so uh, the things that you say to people and do uh, have an impact on their lives. Right. It's, this is, you know, this is real stuff. And, uh, you know, you... you I try to to follow the the physician's rule to first do no harm and mm-hmm. try to make sure that I'm helping and not hurting, uh, and you know I think that that's that yeah, I'm always learning, but you know hopefully over the um, uh, seventeen plus years now that I've been a rabbi that I've uh, learned some things about how to to help people uh, in different ways. I'm not sure I can put a finger on 
oh, I did, you know, I do di- this differently or that differently. Right, right, it's right. more a matter of just, um, uh, first of all, having a certain level of confidence that after you've done stuff enough, you you don't have to keep uh, thinking, oh, how do I do this? And yet at the same time, trying to have the humility to realize just because you've done it before with someone else doesn't mean it's the same thing with this family. Right, right. And being able to be flexible and, right. and, and have a, a empathy is an enormous I, part of what you do. I think my level of flexibility has gone up. Sure. Uh, I think I came in with, uh, I think most of us who come out of school tend to be a little bit rigid about it has to be this way. And then you start realizing, well, maybe you doesn't have to completely be that way and you can find a way to combine what you want and what the congregant wants sure. in a way that seems right. I, I really loved it in, in your bio when it says that you are happiest when Jews, Jews are involved in community building, worshiping with intention, and when the Red Sox win, which yes. is one of my passions as well. <laughs> but that, but that uh, the community building uh, part of this and the outward mission of mm-hmm. the church is um, how has that expressed itself in your life? Okay, so any number of things. First of all, I've been very involved in interfaith work every place I've gone. I've, uh, I think I mentioned that back in high school I was involved in interfaith services, and this left made a mark on me. And my community in Texas, the synagogue got along very well with uh, uh, the neighboring houses of worship, and so that to me has always felt central. So when I was in rabbinical school, I didn't have much time for activities because of uh, having to get back home to my family. So I limited myself to one, and that one activity was interfaith work. Uh, And every community I've been in, I've been involved with. Here in Franklin, uh, I have been a member of the Franklin Interfaith Council uh, and uh, currently the treasurer. Um, And uh, I think we've done some very important things. and I'm always eager to reach out to, you know, through the Interfaith Council and then through other ways of reaching out to community. I'm going to be uh, uh, leading a Hanukkah service at one of the nursing homes uh, right. uh, uh, in the coming days. Sure. And uh, that sort of thing is another chance to reach out to people. Um, I'm, I, I just feel that um, the Jewish community needs to be part of a larger world, just as it, at the same time it needs to be able to feel community within itself. And I've tried to find ways to strengthen community within our congregation and uh, to practice what the, the head of the Reform Movement refers to as audacious hospitality. Audacious hospitality. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Um, I am very interested in kind of rolling back just a little bit to what mm-hmm. you said, and that's being part of the community and having community within mm-hmm. the, the walls of the temple. Um, we were talking a little bit about the show, uh, before the show, a little bit about uh, anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, you were sharing with me that it's that it seems to have, in the last uh, several months, uh, really reared its ugly head, even locally. Yeah, it has. Um, the first the uh, Anti-Defamation League, which keeps statistics about these sort of things, noted that in the first three months of 2017, the number of anti-Semitic incidents had gone up 86 percent from mm-hmm. the previous year. Of course, we all saw what happened at Charlottesville. That's right. And um, I don't know if all of, uh, of uh, the listeners know this, but 
the uh, the neo Nazis were chanting, "You will not replace us. The Jews will not replace That's us." That's right. Uh, there was a synagogue that was holding services that Saturday, and its members were in fear. Uh, and there was a it was a reform congregation down in Charlottesville, and they handled it well. But it was a very terrifying event, and I spoke about it uh, to our congregation on uh, on Rosh Hashanah this year um, in Franklin. Um, the uh, yeah, I'm, I don't think I'm telling anything because these have all been uh, reported to the families, but. Of the schools, uh, there have been uh, anti-Semitic incidents at uh, uh, two of our middle schools. Uh, there have been swastikas at mm-hmm. two of our middle schools, and you know we don't. The people who did them haven't been found, and so we don't know exactly what was going on in their minds. But mm-hmm. it's a concern. Um, I will say that I think the school district has been uh, uh, very thoughtful, very involved as. Uh, really working on things and that they have, uh, I suggested they connect up with the uh, Boston office of the Anti-Defamation League, and they have, and they're doing training. Uh, so I think that, that we're addressing it. What is well the impact? Uh, what is the impact of, of those types of things on, I, I would say, first of all, I break it out into children, uh, Jewish children that are that are faced with this. Do they have a concept of, uh, if they're if, certainly if they're practicing, do they have a concept of how historically how bad this is um you know we try to teach them yeah um and we actually had a program with some of our uh, high school students who are not just in franklin but in many of the surrounding communities as well and many of them have experienced some level of Mm -hmm. anti-semitism you know not necessarily big stuff but something Mm -hmm. uh and so uh we try to make them aware without making them feel like everybody's against them because right. that is clearly not true either. There are, there are so many more people, so many more people of goodwill than not. Right. And I think we need to keep that in mind as we look at this, that we can't let the uh, the, the, the haters uh, feel that they've dominated because and, they don't. Right. And, and in, this, in this climate, it would be so easy to get cynical yep. and, and to live in, in wrapped in anger and, and, and wall yourself off even more, I assume. Right. At least it would for me. That would Absolutely. be my nature. And the other part is that, uh, that it's important for me to say to, uh, to our congregation, and I do this regularly, that Judaism is a religion of joy and that, you know, we have lived as a people with anti-Semitism for uh, thousands of years, right. and we're still here. Right. And we're still here. Right. And so it's th- that, it can't, and throughout that time, if anti-Semitism had been, had dominated our lives, I'm not sure we would be. Right. We need to have inside ourselves a sense that uh, there's a great deal of joy and happiness in Judaism, and that's what I want to share with people. It's it's a great way. I love that you just said that. And and part of this community building to me, and I believe that we're either in a state of fear or in love. I mm-hmm. believe those are the two dominating right. emotions. So when somebody expresses a, a racial epithet or or a or a uh, anti-Semitism. To me, it's it's ignorance and fear. Fear is driving that. I'm not sure of what I'm looking at here, so I might as well. I'm not feeling great about myself, so I might as well lash out. Uh, maybe it's been rehearsed. Uh, maybe it's something that they've learned throughout time. But 
I do believe that as as you've opened up your your temple, uh, I had dinner uh, with you with a yes. Holocaust survivor, uh, not in the very very recently. Yes. Um, but as you open yourselves up, as you invite people in for celebrations of menorah lighting, as you engage with the community, that is the in my mind the best way for that fear to dissipate. Would you agree with that? I absolutely would agree with that, and that has been the tradition of our temple since well before I got here. What I have done is really nothing more than to continue a tradition that started before we ever had rabbis, as well as the two full-time rabbis who preceded me. Our temple's only been around since uh, the 1980s. Mm -hmm. But our lay leadership uh, from the beginning and our rabbis from the beginning have made it a point to say we are part of our larger community. That is central to our lives. Um, and so we're around, you know, anywhere from the uh, from our, our uh, booth on the common during the Fourth of July right. to yeah. uh, you know to uh, our menorah lightings to any number of other places where we try to encourage people to just see us as part of the fabric of this very exciting and lovely community. And that's it, right? That's the interwoven fabric that we're all part of, um, and and we need to recognize that we're all attached. We're all in this together. And by the way, if everything's the same and everybody worships the same way, it's an awfully, awfully boring place. <laughs> it's true. This yeah. is... Uh, the, the, each of us brings our own special spice to, yeah, the, to the stew. That's for sure. Hey, can we just reflect? I'd love to get your uh, input into this. Um, what, what has been one of the biggest challenges you faced as a uh, rabbi? Um, you know, uh, often it is, each congregation, as I said, really does in some ways live on its own, and that creates uh, issues about do we have enough people to do the four million wonderful things we want to do to help our people? Can we do things without taking, you know, without expecting people to spend so much money to make this all possible that, um you know that they that people have a variety of requirements in their lives, and there's only so much they can give mm-hmm. at different times. And so, trying to find a way to uh, get to do a lot of things, and then as much as anything else, trying to find a way to change the mindset of thinking about this as our problem is scarcity, because our problem isn't scarcity; it is tapping into all of our strengths that we have in our community. And the more of that that we do, the more wonderful things we can make happen. Um, It's building on what we have rather than bemoaning what we lack. Celebrating abundance. Precisely. Celebrating abundance and using that to propel yourself forward. That's that's an interesting... And, and as you said before, you are completely self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. You're not getting an infusion of cash from right. anywhere else other than your congregation. Exactly. Yeah, so... so, so and, but, and we do have wonderful people who have done wonderful things, and it is amazing what what we have managed to accomplish as a small congregation. Mm, mm, that's fantastic. Um, one of the things that I that I did in research uh, for uh, this program was I stumbled upon your sermon from Yom Kippur, 
um, that I found uh, particularly touching and moving and instructive. And the name of that sermon is Getting to Be the Author of Your Life. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind spending a couple of minutes talking about this issue, this issue of death and dying. Yom Kippur is is specifically uh, designed to uh, address that issue. It's mm-hmm. it's uh, and it's a very uh, it's a time of reflection mm-hmm. and it's a time of um, rededicating yourself to living a life of purpose. Yes, is that correct? It is. It is. It's a sense that uh, this is. It, it is the most solemn day of the Jewish year, and it is a chance to really reflect. You fast for the entire day. I mean, by fast, I mean you do not drink or eat for the entire 24 hours. Um, And so it's a chance to sort of put the whole world aside and really reflect on who you are and who you've been and where you are going. So it's... it's, uh, it's a heavy day. It's a heavy stuff. It's heavy stuff. And, you know, I was so drawn to this because as we get older, and I am your age, um, which doesn't make us old, it just makes us contemporaries. Precisely. But, yeah. But um, but uh, as we get older, we, we certainly have the opportunity to see the range of good and bad that God has provided us on this planet. Um, I'm not fond of saying uh, uh, God doesn't exist when things go wrong, because Mm -hmm. God has given us the ability to experience the worst of times and the best of times. Mm -hmm. And so I've tried to pass along to my children that um, developing resiliency and developing faith and developing community is a central part of what they need to be doing as they grow, uh, because it's in those states, when you're well prepared, that you can both celebrate the greatest of times and cope with the worst of times or help others cope. This is what I found so fascinating about this sermon. You're talking about how our society has developed over time the practice of dealing with end-of-life issues medically and financially and gotten away from quality. I guess I'm going to maybe just paraphrase a little mm-hmm. bit here. So the choice really there is is um, is one of uh, taking qualitative measures uh, versus quantitative measures in the medical community. To me, it's a very instructive story. Can you talk to us a little bit about what, what this sermon... Uh, sure. <laughs> it was inspired by, and it was... Uh, uh, it was inspired by uh, a book by Dr. Atul Gawande, right. who is a Boston-area physician. At because, the Brigham, right? At the Brigham, yep. because all great things start in Boston. <laughs> and uh, his book um, is about um, these questions, about the problems of, as he likes to say, the problem that it used to be once upon a time you went to the doctor, and at some point the doctor would say, oh, there's nothing else we can do, and then you start figuring out what are you going to do with the end of your life? How are you going to live? But that uh, medical science is so advanced that there seems always to be, well, there's something else. We can try this. There's this chance. And often your chances are extraordinarily low. But for many people, it's, I, I can't not do this. Right. Which would be fine, except that that means that you're giving something else up in return. You're giving up control of anything. You have to let the doctors do what they're going to do. You're feeling awful. You are in hospital beds uh, with full of tubes. Uh, and you don't really have a chance to have any control over your life. And his point is, and I thought this was very profound, 
is that we need to have a sense of control. What we, what everyone wants, is a feeling that they are, uh, that they are living their lives in a purposeful way, not in somebody else's way, in a way that they want to live them. And so his point is to try to think of as as, as we get toward end of life issues. What do I really want? How do I want to spend my last days, if it is the last days? And when I can still do things, what are, what's the best I can do for, my, for how I want to live my life with the hand I was dealt? Right. Because really, um, life happens and we cannot control what happens externally. We can't control how we feel and how we want to live. We can only control our, our reactions. Exactly. Right, right. And so um, I used some examples of his. One of, a, of this young woman who uh, was in a, effectively a terminal state. Uh, it was terrible that she got cancer so young, but she did. And they kept trying new things and new things. And she died in a way that it was fairly clear no one in her family, including her, wanted. Right, right. And then he talks about another woman who was the um, uh, a music teacher, piano teacher, her, I piano yeah. teacher, right, yeah. for his child, and who was also had a, a terminal condition. And part of what she did was she went to hospice, um, not just for the last couple of days, as as many of us do, but for you know a few months, and was able to have all of her students come in and to teach them and to have them all do a recital for her uh, and died with her family in her bed. Um, you know, we can't always make sure that happens, but we need to be so much more conscious about how we live our lives and how we deal with uh, the end of them and to be as purposeful as we can at the end of our lives as we are in everything else we do. You know, and you just, thank you for saying that. You just, and that's the reason why this caught my eye. And that's the reason this resonated. It wasn't so much about the end of life, but you know, heck, this could be the end of my life today. Um, who knows? We just don't know. And to me, it, it was about living uh, with intention. And you talk about worshiping with intention. Mm-hmm. It's, it's being intentional about what we do every day and checking in mm-hmm. uh, on a periodic basis. And I assume that's what you, you, you do in worship, mm-hmm. is you're, you're checking in with your creator yep. and with folks in your community and, uh, and reevaluating and evolving uh, over time. And I find, I find that subject is one that we don't talk about. Ironically, enough this morning on my way over here i'm watching a a rebroadcast of the view and one of my favorite politicians is i don't watch the view by the way on a regular (laughs) basis but one of my favorite politicians is uh, joe biden Mm -hmm. and uh, as people probably know he recently lost his son Bo to horrific brain cancer uh brain cancer that is uh, really not survivable and he was on the program ironically enough uh, John McCain's daughter is now a co-host of that program, one of the hosts, and uh, she breaks into tears and says, you know, at a moment, uh, John, uh, you know, my dad is struggling with this, and, and he goes over by her side, and, and, and frankly, I thought he was going to have some pearls of wisdom about end-of-life talk, and instead he talked about all of the hope and research there is, and if anybody can beat this, John can beat it, and so on and so forth. I don't want to imply that struggling to beat something is a bad Mm-hmm. bad thing. But what I am saying is that uh, there's there's some sort of 
failure to recognize and failure to 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 uh, articulate the fact that death is probable here. Number mm-hmm. one, uh, it it kind of blots out that the entire point of your sermon, which is which is to live with intention, and says, you know, by gosh, uh, whoever it is that's grappling with something something like this, you better get in there and fight and win this. Mm-hmm. And guess what? That sets up the ultimate. If you don't win, you lose. Right. So now there's a winner and a loser. Right. And to me, that Tom, that's just awfully um, cold. Yep. And difficult to grapple with. Yeah, I didn't see the uh, the the, the uh, broadcast you mentioned. I heard a little bit about it, but I do think that the that people need to find a way, and that we have to help them find a way to make their lives as meaningful as possible. Now for some people it is you know fighting and sure. it isn't and you don't always and I'm not by any means encouraging people to say oh this doesn't work I'm going to give up. Uh, I certainly know of people who have fought very hard uh, and and their courage is is beyond admirable. Um I am saying that whatever it is, it needs to be your choice. You need to have the uh, control over your life. So whatever you decide is because you really want it, not because someone is pushing you to do it. You have to decide how to make your life meaningful, and it can be in any number of ways. Uh, it, it's 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 said in Judaism that uh, well the the. The Bible tells us that human beings are created in the image of God. And there's a uh, Jewish story that says uh, an earthly ruler would put their own face on coins. If you look at a British coins, they'll have Queen Elizabeth on them. Right, right, right. Earthly ruler will put their own face on coins, and everyone is the same. God puts God's face on human beings, and each of us is different. So we can bring the godliness out in our lives in our own unique manners, each one of us. Uh, but the point is to bring out that godliness, to bring out that, that that divine spark within us every moment of our lives, including toward the end. What a fantastic message. And uh, I would urge people, if you want to read that sermon, it is online, and you can just Google uh, Rabbi Thomas Alpert and the name of the sermon, Getting to Be the Author of Your Life. One other story I wanted to tell yes, you, if please. you don't mind, no. before we go, just please. because this happened to me just the other day. Please. We had last week our biennial convention, biennial every two years, our, our national convention of the reform movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as it happened, North American actually, Canada too, uh, and as it happened, that convention was in Boston. So um, I was at it. And I ran into um, uh, a young man I know who had gone to the same college and law school I went to, and he has some fairly substantial physical disabilities. Um, his dad is was a rabbi. His sister is a rabbi. And he told me a story about himself I'd never heard which was that um, he had wanted to be a rabbi, but because of his disabilities, that just didn't seem like it was going to be in the cards. It was going to require too much money for the the seminary to retrofit everything to make it work for him. And so we went on to law school instead. 
and um, he was talking to his dad about how I guess this is the right thing, but I'm not really sure. I guess I have to do this, and but I really do sort of want to be a rabbi. And he told me that his dad said to him, well, you know, look at Tom Alpert. No decision's final. And he told me that he had just had his interview that day to Hebrew Union College to become a rabbi. Wow. Which, from which, and he has now been accepted. Uh, and I am, uh, and he's going to be an amazing rabbi. And I am so touched that he told me that story. What a wonderful thing. What a, what a wonderful thing. And uh, he was uh, obviously um, learning from you as you would learn from others. And uh, his dad was prophetic enough to be able to to reach out to him and use you as the example. That's wonderful. Uh, Tom, in the remaining few minutes that we have, I wanted to just chat with you a little bit about the happy subject of the Boston Red Sox. What do you think about our new manager? So I am always hopeful with the Sox. I am going to assume that the Yankees substantially overpaid and that (laughs) this is all going to come crashing down. But instead, we will get the hitter we need. We have a smart young manager. Um, I always loved him when he was with the Red Sox and he would be on the air talking about the team. And he always seemed to me someone who knew what he was doing. So I uh, expect that uh, Alex Cora is going to take us there and that this year we're going to put that uh, pennant back up at Fenway. I think you're right. Again, uh, Rabbi Alpert, I can't thank you enough for coming in. Um, I've really enjoyed getting to know you more. And I look forward to, uh, to seeing you around. Frank. Thank you, Jim. So for Rabbi Tom Alpert, my name is Jim Derrick saying thanks very much for listening to Chapters.